Hello to you all and a welcome to the first official installment of the Pitcast by us here at the Pit Crew Online from the fans for the fans. Now, if you heard our introductory episode and have chosen to come back for this, we thank you and hope that you enjoyed this installment. Let's bring you all up to speed with the crew members today. There is, of course, me. My name is Luca. And joining me today from the introductory episode, we have our deputy editor again. It's James. Hi, thanks, Luca. It's a pleasure to be back again and talking about motorsport. Indeed it is. Oh, and now, alongside James and myself, we are joined by our boss, the de facto leader of the Pit Crew Online, the crew chief himself. Do give a warm welcome to editor-in-chief and the only remaining founder of the Pit Crew Online, Simon. Hi there, Ed. Yeah, sorry to have to do this to you, Simon, but could you give some background to our yeah. listeners about yourself? Sure. So, as Lucas said, I'm the found, one of the founders of the Pitcrow Online. We started, I believe, in 2013. It's a very small, basic site for a group of writers who basically did their own blogs. I wrote for another organisation. Um, we wanted to really just concentrate on motorsport rather than the other sites we all wrote for or blogs were based on other sports as well. So it just really grew from there. Um, as, as it's grown, we've grown in numbers, we've grown in, in websites. We started, as I said, we started on a basic site and now we're, we're fully supported by Taurus, our IT guy. We have um, Julia who does all our uh, PA work. Um, I think that's probably about all I've got to, <laughs> got to say about myself. It's, it's really about everyone else and, and trying to get writers noticed and get them into paid jobs. I mean, that, that's all that we really get out of it. Yep, indeed. I mean, when I volunteered back in March, I knew I was going to get paid, um, but I don't mind. I, the fact that you provide a platform for us a lot, we really appreciate the, the opportunities that are going to come out of it, Simon. So thank you. It's exactly that. It's a platform for, for mainly young writers to get their work out there, to get seen and, and as I said, hopefully get paid, paid employment in the future. We've been successful with a couple of writers in the past. A couple have gone on to Dorma. Um, one's gone to work for a, a national magazine in India. So we, we have had some success and hopefully we'll have lots more in the future. Don't count on me for that one. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right, everybody. So in this installment of the Pitcast, we are talking about the resumption of real life racing, specifically in regard to a lot of major big motorsport categories like Formula One and MotoGP. And just to fill you all in, of, of course, we all know what it is, but the motorsport world has been a bit of a, at a standstill uh, due to the ongoing pandemic. But we look to soon be getting back up and running again. Uh, in the last few days, F1 have indeed confirmed their first eight races, with two races in Austria back-to-back, -back, followed by the Hungarian GP in the first three weeks of July. A one-week break followed by three successive races, two at Silverstone, followed by the Spanish Grand Prix. Then two weeks later, back-to-back -back rounds at Spa and Monza. If any more race dates have been confirmed, whether that be in F1 or many other championships, we most likely are recording this before any of that has been confirmed. So, gentlemen, on to the task at hand. We're going to be have, there's a lot of questions to come out of this um, current situation. Uh, I want to start with you, James. Uh, so motorsport as a whole obviously had to come to a standstill, mainly because you have so many people involved and that it, it just couldn't keep going with the ongoing dangers that came with COVID. Unfortunately, it's, 
it, it sucked. And ever since the Australian Grand Prix, we have been able to enjoy like the esports side. I don't know I have for per se, but when it comes to real life racing, I, this is something that I think a lot of people really need it in a way. Don't don't you, don't you agree? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, it's been great having all of the esports championships um, that've been going at the moment. Um, I must confess, I've not, I've not fully in, been able to get into esports as much as a lot of other people have. So I'm, I'm currently chomping at the bit to you know watch some real racing again. But equally, like only as long as it's safe. Um, that's the important thing, of course. Of course. I mean, uh, what are the plans for the um, for the supposedly they're trying to limit the number of personnel who are going to be attending motorsport events. You're not, there's going to be no crowds, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be really surreal. <laughs> F1 having no crowds, most of the junior <laughs> categories. Oh, is this your first time? <laughs> like, because you never see many uh, crowds at like a Formula 4 race, for example. Um, mm. But then, then there's a lot of like ethical questions about this as well. Like, is it, is it a good idea? Like, I have, a, I have my older brother, Robert. He recently had a kid with his, um, with his girlfriend. Um, and my, my, my brother's girlfriend actually made a point of why do we, why should motorsport get, indeed any sport, or, or get priority over someone who's just trying to get by? Mm, I mean, it's, it is tricky because it's like, even if you have the races behind closed doors and don't have the fans at the circuit, you have still got hundreds of personnel you know, even with like limited race teams and things, just with the kind of the hospitality staff, the media staff, the camera crews that do the TV feeds. So it's, yeah, it's going to be a monster operation to try and trim down just to run one Grand Prix. Um, and they've put in some good solutions, like with the, the back-to-back rounds in Austria and Silverstone to try and reduce travel, um, try and, yeah, reduce the impact of of the Formula One circus moving around the world. Um, I, I really don't envy <laughs> envy the work they've got to do at the moment to make this sport safe and get it going again. Yeah, it's um, an absolute Herculean task, isn't it? And because it's such an evolving situation as well, I mean, it's like we saw with the Australian Grand Prix, they thought that was going to be fine to go ahead. And then literally about an hour before first practice, wasn't it, that it was called off? And, Apparently um, it was I mean, like I remember, 3 a.m. for them. Yeah, I remember being um, being up like because um, obviously I was here in the UK. We were going to be commentating on FP1 that morning, and being up um, at whatever time it was, about kind of half twelve, yeah, just after midnight, and just going through Twitter, seeing people who were like journalists at the site and saying things like, "We don't know if it's going to go ahead." Um, so I can understand, yeah, that's it's such a difficult thing when you've got to make these calls like so far in advance, but with the situation changing every single day and even hour by hour sometimes um yeah it's it's gonna take a lot to make it safe but they seem to have put in a lot of work to to got that done um the fact that they've had to lose quite a few rounds just um yeah throughout sort of march april may and june as well proves they're taking it seriously yeah i'm glad about that uh simon i'm gonna just um you you uh, we mentioned off you mentioned off air how what races do you think they're going to be having and I did see something I can't remember how many weeks ago now about F1 planning on essentially trying to streamline their calendar so we've got the first eight races uh, they're all in Europe at the moment and apparently what they're planning on doing is to to limit as much 
travel uh, as possible is having the Eurasian rounds after Monza, so that's like Baku and Sochi, which is like roughly on the European-Asian border, then going to Asia, then um, the Americas, and then flying back over to the Middle East races. And I've got, I, I'm, I'm just at a, a point now where it, I, I'm, I'm really struggling to think, is that, is that even going to be, that even going to be possible? Like the fact that they're planning on structuring the calendar like that to get roughly about 15 or more races. It's going to be crazy. I mean, Baku is literally in the middle of nowhere. Um, I don't know what, what if any uh, coronavirus measures they have out there. I'm sure the team, teams and the FIA will, will be on top of that. Um, Asia, Asia's been you know, the epicenter of, of coronavirus. Um, and they're talking about going back to China, I, I read this morning. I'm not sure I, if you look at it from not so much as a as a, a crew member working for a team. But if, you, if your husband, wife, son, daughter worked for one of those teams and you, you knew they were going to go out to these countries and possibly put them and their families at risk, how does that work? You know, it's, it's a minefield. Well, I, I, I do, don't we have like a, a member of our team, actually, as someone who anonymously contributes and whilst they work in the mm -hmm. F1 paddock? Yeah, we do. <laughs> <laughs> the pit crew spy. Yeah, cannot disclose the name. All the team. Of course. I don't, I don't even know who it is, really. But even if I did, I would keep my mouth There was more than one um, at one stage. Um, and it, it was an account that we set up for a staff to anonymously um, post information or, you know, put stuff, stuff on that they knew. And, and I think it's literally probably one or two now that actually do it and it's very seldom I'm, I tend to jump on the account to retweet stuff from the from our our, um, our main feed but uh, one in particular one guy I know he has they are back at work and um, they have got social distancing measures um, I'd love to mention the team but it would be a huge giveaway and don't worry don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> try not to slip with that one <laughs> nearly did um, but yeah, I mean, he's very up for going, going for it. I know his family and, um, you know, they're supportive, but understandably apprehensive. One of the things they're apprehensive about is um, not so much being there, being at the racetrack, but getting on an aeroplane. Um, so the European mm -hmm. leg, that's going to be fine from what, I, you know, it will be road transport. But if they go outside Europe and they've got to get on a plane, um, you're trapped on a plane with how many other individuals? Um, they recirculate the air, I assume. I don't know, but you know, I assume that's how it works. Uh, they're talking about air bridges and 14-day quarantines when they get back to the UK. So how would that work? I mean, some of the bigger teams will have the staff to to manage that. Um, some mm. teams, we, we all know, Williams are struggling. Will they be able to afford to have? You know, their whole race team take 14 days off when they fly back to the UK and someone else take over. Yeah, that is actually yeah, something. Sorry, do you want to say something, James? Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, um, just adding on that, like Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull have, like Simon said, they have the staff to be able to do that. But a team like Haas and Racing Point and Williams, their numbers are limited. So, yeah, when, when F1's trying to pack in a schedule as tight as it is this year, trying to still get 15 to 18 races in about half a year there isn't really the time to 
have say two weeks layover in between those you know teams have got to have multiple crews that they can send out um and that is going to be very very tough on the smaller teams just to have those numbers there and available can i ask you guys what what you think is a minimum number of races that were constitute a meaningful world championship oh it's a good question because i know in the rules strictly it has to be eight races on three different continents um but well, I've got the one no, continent so far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's an interesting point as well. Like, if, um, you know, at the moment, um, the American rounds are obviously the US, Mexico, and Brazil. Um, and currently, the US and Brazil have the two highest um, numbers of confirmed cases in the world. So, if the, with the situation going as it is, those races might be in jeopardy by the time they come around. And I don't know what F1 does if it gets to that point where it's, you know, it's going to the end of the season and it can't run, say, the American rounds, the American and the Latin American rounds. I don't, how does it get around that rule that it's not classed as a world championship if it's not made it to three continents? It's not going to Melbourne now, so that won't count. Um, you won't be able to get a continent there. Um, whether they'll have to bend the rule a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised if it was safer to go back to somewhere like Australia. Australia could pull it off, you know, even uh, another oh, uh- one of them. A round at Phillip Island or Bathurst instead of Melbourne. That would be sick. <laughs> 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 Red Bull uh, their cars around Bathurst or was it someone else? McLaren, someone I think. Else. Yeah, McLaren. Yeah, one big anniversary for Bathurst and they, they drove a Formula One car. But I do not... actually want to bring up um, World Touring Cars did release a schedule and they, off, they mm-hmm. have had rounds in like the Asia region, uh, Europe, they've had some in America. Uh, this season has been quite shortened in, in terms, I think it starts in like August, and they are only doing Europe, even though it's called World Touring Cars. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, I, uh, I, want, I also want to go back to your point, I don't know, if, I forget who it was who said it, but about how the teams are really going to be able to function. Um, the fact is, is that the first six races are held in a seven-week period, and mm. there, there are some concerns as to whether they're actually going to have the spare parts and the money for a lot of the smaller teams. So if like you crash at one of the rounds, you might actually put your entire season in jeopardy. Mm, that's a good point, especially if it's, yeah, when the rounds are so tightly packed together, just being able to get, um, just got to get the logistics of it in because normally teams will send their, their freight to one race and they'll already have freight moving to another race later in the calendar. Um, but yeah, with the season so tightly packed and with finances uh, obviously not in their healthiest, given the situation, that is going to be a concern, I imagine, for a lot of the smaller teams. We don't know. Like what, maybe, sorry, Simon. We don't know what other countries' quarantine rules are. We, we know that in in the UK they want to be, to install a, a fourteen day quarantine period when you when you fly back into the country. But countries that we're hoping to fly to, obviously, I'm guessing that. They wouldn't have given us this provisional ca- uh, calendar without checking with these countries that we can fly. They can fly their stuff in and out safely. But anywhere else, I'm going to get guess, especially someone like Brazil or the US, they're going to have something like this. They're going to have that 14 day. Brazil, I mean, the numbers are, are frightening as they are in the US. And everything else going on in the US, would you even try to to negotiate for a race there at the moment? Although, mm, it becomes an interesting ethical question, I think, as well. Like with um, 
if a country if a country's government allows F1 to hold a race, um, I wonder if F1 will have to make a decision whether it's whether it is responsible for them to bring it there, um, even if they're allowed to by local legislation. Um, like you said, a come for example, the US or Brazil with the cases, or Russia, for example, the cases as high as they are, if the country say, yes, it's fine to come, does F1 have to make that decision of, we're not sure whether we should go with the numbers still as they are, or, or will they say, if the government's saying it's allowed, then it's fine. Unfortunately, F1 follows the money. You know, they've, they've been prepared to race in, in countries with diabolical human rights records. Uh, China, in, Russia, yep. Yeah, China. Uh, it just it doesn't seem to bother them. So if the money's there, they'll race. Uh, I know they did put in quite a lot with the. I saw with the Austrian Grand Prix, they put in a lot of um, in negotiations with the Austrian Health Ministry to make sure they could even. I think it was even like just to make sure they could have one Grand Prix without impacting the local health services, let alone two. Um, so there is work going on in the background, but yeah, there is that there is that question of they've also got to have this number of races. They've got to have it for the money for the teams to still be going. Can um, I bring in? Can I make a, a question? Well, ask a question to Simon. Obviously, you know who Picro Spy is. Um, <laughs> what I want to. Sorry, I keep bringing them up. What do I? What What do the teams have to do to ensure that they are exempt from certain quarantine restrictions in regards to, you know, they don't they don't travel to a country and infect some. They have to sort of keep themselves essentially in like a bubble, don't they? I'm guessing so. I know they've they've had they've been tested, or this particular guy's been tested. Um, so he's he was good to go. Um, I think that you know you get a pack in the NHS. Someone at a courier comes around to your house, takes the package, um, and disappears. I mean, James probably knows more about that than I did because he's he's unfortunately had it. But I don't think it's any different any different measures from any other form of business from what, what I gather. It's just that, you know, they're, they're putting, by, by flying out to races, whatever race it is, they're putting themselves at greater risk because they're mm. going to have to, they can't stay two metres away from each other, can they, in a, in a small garage? Mm, working yeah. around an F1 car that's in not fact, really that big anyway. But the factory back home, I'm sure they you know, they've got measures they can, they can manage it. You know, it's a management mm. situation. When you're, in a race race situation at a foreign Grand Prix in a small garage, I just don't see it's manageable. How how is the pit wall going to work? Are we going to have one guy exactly. at one end and one guy at the other and no one in the middle? And they well, don't... I'm, sorry, can I can I just say something? Apparently, from yeah, what sure. I've heard, uh, they're planning on well, obviously limiting every team to have a set number of personnel per race, but also apparently they will all be kept in a bubble from each other. So. Uh, if someone from Alpha Towery tries to interact with someone from Racing Point, they they are kept quite far apart. But yeah, mm -hmm. apparently, as long as they are all within their teams and have all been tested, and uh, when they're outside of the team, like maybe at home, for example, I don't know if that's going to be allowed. If people are going to have to like keep with their team for six months, but uh, as long as they are noticeably distant, I'm guessing from 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 anyone that would obviously risk putting anyone. Uh, in danger of getting contracting the virus as long as they're doing that then supposedly they can still stay within their team's quarters mm. is that right don't go don't go home to your family just stay with the team yeah <laughs> the team. oh that's gonna be difficult 
<laughs> yeah, they spend I'm enough sure. time away from home as it is. I'm sure there's quite a few, few young guys with, you know, with a few kids that are thinking, yeah, this is a result. I'll get to say what I have. Yeah, big yikes on that one. Um, can I move on to something? It was something I wanted to bring up. It's the F1 calendar in general. Um, I've noticed in the last few years, uh, I, I, I remember one of the initial, um, I think a German newspaper had brought up this supposed draft calendar for 2020 and there was a point on it that really annoyed me uh, obviously it turned out to be fake but um, Daniel Ricciardo once brought up something about how uh, difficult it is that the F1 calendar is structured often the way it is so for example um, where when it, we go to Spa and Monza that I know they're not the closest of countries anywhere but you don't require a plane to travel from Belgium to Italy you just drive there within a week but after Monza, you go to Singapore, which is obviously uh, in like the middle of the Far East of Asia. Then you travel back to Sochi, which is on the most southerly point of European Russia. And then you go to Japan, which is Far East Asia. I've always had such an issue with unnecessary, like when it's Canada, for example, like Canada's right in the middle of the European season, which is inconvenient mm -hmm. because you can't really place that along with Mexico and US because that time of year for Montreal, it's probably really too cold. So it's like the one notable exception. But when it comes to things like having, you, you could really just save on so much air travel if you um, go from Monza to Sochi to Marina Bay to Suzuka. Like there is so many points. It's not even just F1. MotoGP in, uh, I think it was 2011, they had their rounds. They went to Laguna Seca in the middle of the year, and then uh, after Germany, I think. Then they went to the Czech Republic, and then went back to America of Indianapolis, and then to Misano. Obviously, in future years, they swapped that round. They noticed their flaw there. But uh, Simon, sorry to throw you under the bus here, but do you <laughs> think? Yeah, do you think that motorsport calendars could really use this opportunity to really sort of look into their structure in terms of where they? go and how they travel to really make it as I don't know motorsports not an, an environmentally friendly sport like obviously with all the travel and the racing itself but do you think that they, where, the little areas that they can save on they can use this time now to really analyze what they can do better absolutely as you said the environmental theme shouldn't be ignored the biggest environmental damage caused by Formula One isn't the cars driving around the circuit, it's getting the cars to the circuits on the aeroplanes, the teams, teams there, all of that infrastructure. So when they say Formula E is much greener, it's, it's greener, obviously the cars are greener and they're looking in the right direction, but they're still flying these cars around the world. So to have those, those races closer together geographically makes perfect sense. I've often wondered this myself, you know, as you say, you look at the calendar and you think, why? just doesn't make, make any sense. It's almost like whoever comes up with a calendar hasn't looked at an atlas and thought, oh, wait a minute, I'm gonna make them have to fly. Oh, don't worry, Some, or they've got shares in the, uh, in, the, in the company that transports all this stuff. It's, it has to be one or the other. You know, oh, I've got, <laughs> I can make money out of this. I know, let's go from, from Canada back to Europe or from, you know, Sochi to Japan or whatever. It's, you know, it's probably not a great example, but you know, you're right, it doesn't make sense, Luca. It's just, it's just one of those things that's, that's morphed in, in, into, into something that it never was. We didn't really worry. When I started watching Formula One, 
no one really cared about the environment. You, you have V12 engines that were flying all over the world, smoking when they got out of the car, having a drink. It was a very, very different world. But we learn, you know, we've learned, we're learning all the time and we know that the environment is really important. And if by moving those races that are geographically close together, closer together in the calendar, we help save the environment. That, that even that little bit's got to help. Yeah, and uh, Jim's the, the the point I've raised MotoGP there because in 2011, uh, do you follow MotoGP? I don't, I'm afraid. No. Okay. Well, in 2011, it was Casey Stoner's penultimate year before he retired, mm -hmm. and it was actually his second world championship, and he was on a run of form. He, I think it was around that time. He, I think he had actually, I could be wrong, but Germany he won, won at Laguna. Czech Republic, Indianapolis, but then it came to Mizano. He was on pole position. Uh, Mizano's in Italy, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned mm -hmm. that. Um, and he got third, and he said that he was really jet lagged. And it's got you, you have got to think like obviously the the right the, the riders slash drivers are affected by this, but also the teams like they're they're the ones that are constantly working behind the scenes. And could you imagine how stra straining that is working? at points where you know you're going from like you're getting so much jet lag and you probably wake up think, thinking oh it's time to go on oh, wait you know it's 3 a.m like obviously i haven't really experienced that much jet lag but do you do you think that's also an element that really needs to be to be addressed yeah i mean we like we as fans complain enough when it's when the season starts we've got to adjust to australian time and then a week or two weeks later adjust to time in bahrain and then to time in china and then we get that run of the European season where it's, um, at least for us British viewers, it's uh, more or less the same, then it's to the Far East and then America's again. But yeah, with the amount of people that are in a Formula One team that are spending half the year going around the world, that are adjusting to all of these different time zones every other week, you know, it's, and considering the work they do as well, like if any of them are off their game, doing something like a pit stop, putting a tyre onto a car, and it makes it unsafe. It makes it unsafe for the drivers or it makes it unsafe for the people in the garage. Then that's a serious concern and it is something that I think should be looked at. And I know that, um, that there are some races like I, I know there was some trouble getting Bahrain this year to agree to be penciled in near Abu Dhabi at the end of the year, even though it makes geographical sense just because they're worried about you know, people in that kind of area thinking, well, if I'm going to go to one Grand Prix, I'll just go to whichever one's closest. Whereas before they might have thought, I'll go to Bahrain at the start of the year and Abu Dhabi at the end of the year. But yeah, like Simon said, it just doesn't make sense sometimes when you look at the calendar and it's, it's as if they've, you know, it's as if they set the calendar up by alphabetical order rather than by looking at an atlas. <laughs> They're just kind of going, yeah, we'll go to Australia first, then Bahrain, then China, get the ABC in. Now they've got the Dutch Grand Prix for D. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I never thought of that. <laughs> hey, uh, Spain in uh, Spanish is España, so it would be the E. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, yeah it doesn't make sense a lot of the time. And yeah, yeah when you think they can go to Singapore and then on to Japan rather than go back to Russia first. And I'm sure there are legal and contractual reasons somewhere in there, but there's got to be a more sensible way of doing it. And yeah, perhaps this year is a good chance for a reset. Do you think there's too many races, though, generally? Uh, I once asked Jean Todd in a press conference because they'd extended the calendar, do you think it was fair on, on the staff, not the drivers, but, you know, the, the team staff? 
and he really ripped into me saying that these people should be glad to to work with in Formula One. It's a privilege for them. And I said, it's a privilege for them, but their partners and their kids, it's not much of a privilege. Mm. They're off, you know, nine months of the year all over the world and they don't get to see daddy or mummy or whatever. But honestly, he, he ripped me a new one without. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of respect for you for, for asking him that. Or telling him that. <laughs> I think it's a good point though. I, um, I spoke to Kareem Chanduk at Autosport International last year and asked him a similar question. Um, and he said that he really wanted uh, Callum to go back to 18 races because I think even like just from a fan's point of view, the more races you get, the kind of the more spectacle is lost somehow. But if there's a race every weekend, it's no longer as important that you watch it. And especially now that you can just record it when it's on, you don't have to like set up a VCR to, um, to watch cool. it. So. <laughs> Yeah, and you think, well, if I've missed this race, then there's one next week anyway, so I don't have to like change my plans to miss a race. But if there are fewer races in the year, you're more likely, I think, to to arrange your plans around them. Um, I do think I'm interested to see how a shortened season is this year. To be honest, um, yeah, I'm interested to see the effect it has on on things like the championship, and then also things like viewership and the general interest around it. How many races did Lewis win last year? Uh, so many. 2019. Uh, did he win? Was it nine? No, I can't. I can't think. Out of 21 races, I'm not. I'm. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. Unfortunately. <laughs> Do a quick search now. End up winning all of uh, those eight <laughs> If if everyone if Max isn't on it in Austria, Hungary, Great Britain, I think he could easily win those two. Spa, he could win. He could win all those that, those first eight races. Mm. Yeah, he uh, won eleven last year, so that's more than half the calendar. Yeah, it's a lot of the junior drivers who are on the cusp of getting to F one, and in fact, all of them who want to get their super license points. Yeah, so it was. Um, I th I think it's like it's an interesting year for a lot of the junior drivers, especially in F two. Um, you know, the vacancy at Renault, you've got people like Guan Yu Zhou and uh, Christian Lungard in contention for the seat. And then also you've got Mick Schumacher and Robert Schwartzman in there vying for a potential seat Alfa Romeo. And um, yeah, and with, you know, with the championship um, getting up and running, it's possible for them to get their super license points if they're able to complete a championship. But obviously before F1 released its calendar the other day, I was wondering, you know, how much, um, even if they can get the points to be eligible for F1, were they going to be able to get enough experience if the calendar was shortened? Especially, I think, when you look at someone like Christian Lungard, for example, who's making his first jump into F2, you know, would he be, would he actually have the experience to be ready to go into a Renault F1 seat if they only managed to get, say, 10 rounds of F2 in? But, um, but yeah, when F1 announced its calendar the other day with F2 and F3 being at every single one of the European rounds, I think they're, they're probably putting in a good step to address that because it's already given them 16 races. Um, and then there's, with F2, they've still got Sochi, Abu Dhabi, Bahrain and Baku that they're planning on fitting back in, which would give them a great, if that can be pulled off, then that would be give them a great calendar. Even if something like Baku doesn't go ahead, then still with those remaining three rounds, that would give them plenty of experience, I think. But it's going to be, um, it's good that I think they're they're taking that into account because there could have been a lot of drivers who potentially miss an opportunity just because they 
they don't have the experience you know to take those two Renault juniors for example if Renault would have taken a chance on them on any normal year but this year thought you know what they haven't had the experience we're not going to try them in the car for next year then that could have been their career stunted they could have missed their yeah. their one shot so, I do want to make a point about Christian Lundgaard because mm. uh, you know how Lando Norris he went from F to Formula One in the space of like four years. Uh, He was in a different category every year and he was like always up the front. Christian Lundgaard, he was I think in 2017 I think, he was Hmm. a champion in a, I think it was some Formula 4 championship, it was either the SMP or the Spanish championship and then 2018 he was in Formula Renault, he finished uh, I think second to Max Futrell 2019 F3, he was sixth, but he was he was knocking on the door of being very competitive. And the only reason I think he, he got that ART Formula 2 seat was because I believe Renault had actually paid for that seat to race Hubert in it. And, he, and I think Hubert would have probably won the championship this year. And mm-hmm. the shame what happened, obviously, and it's such a missed opportunity. I do want to add, though, even though it's a bit off topic, um, Hubert will actually be a selectable driver for a, the My Team mode in F1 2020, so you can actually grant him his F1 dream. I saw that. Wasn't Correa in, um, in there as well? Yes, he is. Yeah, that was a nice touch, I think. Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah, that was, that was a real... Um, I know that, yeah, Renault were really putting a lot into Hubert's career, and when they said they wanted to promote a junior driver for 2021... I think it really was with him in mind. Um, it's a it's a tragedy what happened to him anyway, um, regardless of where his career was leading. Um, but yeah, knowing that is, yeah, it's such a such a real shame. And yeah, Simon, you were going to say something. No, I was just saying the, the the Formula Two calendar. If they're considering going back to these places, surely that's a clue of where Formula One's future races might lie. Um, mm. If the infrastructure has been put in place to race Formula Two, it will be easy to to run Formula One in a in a pit lane at the same time, the same weekend. So maybe that's I'd say maybe that's a clue. Yeah, F two yeah. and F three often have like a lot less members in the team as well. I went to Carlin and they often have like six mechanics mm. per car, I think, and then mm. all of those mechanics act as pit crew members as well I mean they all do anyway but yeah that's that, that, that that's definitely going to make life a little bit easier for them it's mm. way Formula One's going to cut costs and you know going forward now they've already agreed on these cost cutting measures they're going to have to look you know the junior formulas and how they they manage to run teams because the Formula One teams have got so blown up with you know as the sport's grown you know Again, when I first started watching Formula One in, in the 80s, these teams weren't as big. And there wasn't, you know, the guy in the back of the garage who may be, you know, the third or fourth mechanic would also be making coffee. Now they've got, you know, huge canteens and, and catering. They've got their, you know, each, each person's got their own PR, whether it's a driver, a spare driver, uh, the team principal. They've all got, you know, there's someone standing by them you know, all the time, which is a great opportunity for you guys because, you know, although they tend to go for pretty young girls, I've got to say, you've, you've probably noticed that the PR people are generally young, young girls. Uh, so maybe my, 
No, you could dress up. I don't know. You could rock a skirt. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pass on that one. Um, there is another driver who I'm quite keen on, uh, who, I, who I had a Herculean task for 2020 anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. Any of you familiar with Yuri Vips? Yes, yeah. Yeah, he, Estonian, he, he was the only guy last year to hold a candle to the Premiers in Formula 3. Um, mm. And had he actually finished third in the championship, if he hadn't been overtaken in that last race, he would have had the super license points to contend for a Toro slash Alpha Tauri seat. But as is the case with Red Bull, because they hate Formula 2, um, he's now been put in Super Formula, which is where Dan Dictum's career nearly died a slow death. Um, and apparently for the Super License points to get an Alpha Tauri seat, because of the way it works, it's like a three-year cycle. Yuri Vips, currently his Super License points are, I think it's 30. So he's got 10 from winning, or 12, sorry, no, so it's 32. 12 from winning uh, in Italian, or I think, was it Italian F4? No, if it was German F4, because they always tend to race both. Yeah, um, German F4. Yeah, and then he's got, he got 10 from finishing in fourth in FIA Formula 3 European Championship um, in 2018, and then 2019, fourth again in Formula 3. So, as it, and he would have probably have, he would have got five if he'd won Macau last year, but obviously Richard was short prepared to that. Um, but now he has to finish, I think, second in Super Formula to guarantee that he'll have super license points. And the fact is that he really is being thrown in the deep end already, even before the COVID situation happened. Because if you look at someone like Red Bull, obviously saw Pierre Gasly do well in, in Super Formula and think, oh, that's the, obviously the place to go because Formula Renault is no longer around, 3.5 that is. And, but they didn't take into account that Gasly had already been in GP2 at that point. And so they think that, well, they put Dan Tictum in there. I don't rate Tictum that highly. I know he's decent, but um, my point is, is that these drivers are not going to be able to be fully prepared for, um, for Formula One if they race in a series that has a lot of veterans in it. And mm -hmm. he, yeah, it's, I, feel I feel so much for Vips and I really want him to get that Alfie ta ta Al Alfie? <laughs> Alpha Towery seat. Um, so yeah, again, James, Thoughts on that? Uh, Vips has got a, such a task at hand there. Yeah, I agree with that because you don't get as many um, super license points for Super Formula as you do for something like Formula 2. Um, like you said, he'd have to finish second to get the same points as he would finishing fifth in Formula 2. Um, and yeah, the like Super Formula season hasn't started either yet this year. Um, half of its rounds are still postponed to be confirmed um, the rest aren't starting until August so he's got a lot to um, like a lot to do in that start and it's not it's really not an easy championship to get into um, obviously Red Bull like to send their junior drivers out to uh, super formula so that they can get ingrained in like the Honda way of working to prepare them for working with Alpha Tauri and with Red Bull in the future so there's a lot to adapt to in that and a lot to a lot to adapt to in not much time at all and it is possible obviously Pierre Gasly was contending for the championship when Red Bull sent him out there um, well, Stoffel was a, he, quite well. they had already won GP2 the year before though so they had exactly. an advantage coming from a different position but mm. yeah and I wonder with the the point of like the super license points dropping off after three years I wonder if the FIA is going to put in some kind of provision that if they're 
if a driver's championship, um, if a driver's campaign for this year is scuppered by the coronavirus pandemic, whether they'll put some kind of um, provision in there that they can keep, say, at least some of the super license points from that would have dropped off. Um, so Vips could perhaps keep some of his points from what would have been 2017 or 2016, whenever mm. they drop off from. Um, but it's tricky because then you can't do that with everybody. Um, and it's whether he'd be allowed to keep all of them or just some of them. Um, but I've not heard anything yet about any kind of provision being made for that. Yeah, and uh, there is another thing like Indy Lights, the essentially the Formula 2 for IndyCar, that's actually been completely called off for this year. They're already struggling mm. for entries. And there's a guy in there who I think is formidable. His name's Carl Kirk- Carl, Kyle Kirkwood. He mm. had won F4 America, uh, USF 2000, F3 Americas, um, pro, pro, uh, Indy Pro. And he, and he would have probably won Indy Lights this year. And mm. so, yeah, their, their campaigns are getting scuppered. And, it, and Simon, we'll throw this over to you. The way that super license points work, obviously, being the last three years, James made a point there about allowing a certain... Um, like a certain year from beforehand, perhaps applying or keeping the points if the COVID-19 pandemic really does scupper everyone's hopes of trying to get super license points this year. It, it's, I feel like it's going to have to be inevitable, so, surely, because no one's going to be well prepared for this year. Extend them, aren't they? Because you can't gain those, those points that you would have possibly got. So it would only be fair to not lose the points that you gained. Mm. You're right, it's in- inevitability. Yeah, there should be some kind of leniency. For, like, <laughs> uh, my uni work, I didn't really do great on it, I, I think, but my, I was given some sort of exceptions because of very little um, details of little things that just contributed to me not being able to submit everything on time. Mm. Uh, this, surely you have, I, I get that the motorsport world is very cutthroat and especially the Red Bull junior team. I feel like Yuri's going to have a really difficult time with that if Helmut Marko is going to send him <laughs> to the, send him to the, I don't know a good metaphor. Um, <laughs> yes, the, the Red Bull scrapping. Vips is a formidable driver and I really want him to do well. And I, yeah, so again, with regards to all this, there has, there surely needs to be some, some kind of like allowance for these drivers. Like, you know, Mick Schumacher, Guan Yu Zhou, Christian Lungard, if they're going to be able to, like, keep their points for, like, just another year, just whilst everyone gets right back on their feet. It makes sense. I've been with the FIA here, and, you know, like any organisation, they're very political as well. Who knows what they're going to do? <laughs> uh, so it's easy to forget that a lot of these young drivers, you know, this is their career, and a lot of them are their children or their very young adults like Vips is 19 he's still a teenager and this oh yeah yeah because... now uh, Luca and I talked about uh, Harry Thompson in the past and, mm. uh, you could do a whole podcast on on Red Bull drivers that they've you know bitten and chewed and spat back out it's, it's bizarre levels really and some really talented drivers you know mm-hmm. um, I think uh, Harry's been taken by Sauber now, isn't he, Luca? Yes, he's on. Um, so basically, he and Johnny Edgar were in karting mm-hmm. together as, as Red Bull Juniors. Uh, Edgar is a little bit older, and he was 15 by the start of, I think, the 2019 season. 
and so he got the jump up to F4, albeit he had a lot of support from his family uh, who were able to pay for like one of the best, best seats. Thompson doesn't come from immense wealth, uh, still enough to help him go racing uh, to an extent. However, he had to stay in carts for another year. He did KF level. I think he won, if I'm not mistaken. At the right time, didn't he? Yeah, he won the German karting championship at, at, at oh, it's not KF anymore, isn't it? It's OK, isn't it? So OK class kart. Um, and then I think he also contended I think, for like a European and world championship. But it wasn't enough for Red Bull, even, even though he was winning. So they drop him and now he's meant to be racing this year with as part of Sauber's affiliation, affiliated karting team in Gearbox KZ karts. And so it's like... I mean, Verstappen and Leclerc both did KZ. If anything, it's probably more suitable than OK cards because you've got like standing starts and shifters. But you very rarely see a lot of drivers now choose KZs over F4. It looks like Thompson's career is really going to—he's really going to struggle here. He is, and he's a really talented young driver. I mean, if you've seen him race, he just has everything. He—he was beating Lewis Hamilton's records from what I remember across Europe in karting, but. It seems to come, as ever, it comes down to, to money with motorsport. Mm. Do you have a point there, James? <laughs> and with, you know, the potential that they might be missing a whole season this year, like with that question of money, the amount of money that's already been put into, um, put into say, a season in KZ cards, that it's, you know, if you don't get a season or you don't get a full season, or your chance of getting those points that you need to move up to the next rung of the ladder is um, is scuppered by what's going on. That's an awful lot of money that's just gone down the drain. And for a lot of these young drivers, that might be, you know, their chance. They might not be able to make the money to have that next shot again. And I know it's something Lewis Hamilton's spoken about before, like the amount of commitment that young drivers have to put in with things like missing school to be able to go to race events. For them to be able to, for them to put that kind of, commitment and effort into it and then have it taken away by something that's completely out of their control and to miss their chance and you know be coming out say 15 16 not having completed like a full education and spent all of this money on this dream that's been scuppered by a pandemic you know there's i really hope that the fia and all the motorsport bodies around the world are going to be able to do something to help these kids i do have a point to raise about sorry sorry I feel like I'm talking over you a lot. Um, the, there's a lot of um, to be said about the way that we've got currently in F1 right now, a lot of the, there's a changing of the guard. You've got the likes of Verstappen, Leclerc, Norris, Russell, Albon, all of them lot who are coming in at such a young age and um, really like taking a stranglehold on Formula One as a whole. And that's what most people are trying to, uh, most of the teams now are trying to lead towards. Like, there's, um, there's a driver in uh, Formula 3 this year, he's raced for ART, he's called Theo Porsche. He's 16 in, and, and now already at Formula 3. He, he's, already, he's only had two years of car racing. He's won both the French Junior F4 and the German Formula 4 championships. And there is a danger now that a lot of these, uh, like you were saying, James, at 15, 16, you've, you've really dedicated your whole life to it mm. for it to be, to go down the drain. Because, like, what is it? One in six, maybe more drivers are, are the ones that get to F1. The other, however many, tend to um, 
really struggle after after their shot ends to just have a normal life. Like you know, do do you remember the driver Shell Peak? Who drove, yeah. drove he drove for Marussia and Caterham. Uh, he then did like a couple of stints in like the World Endurance Championship. And I think he made a Formula E uh, race as well. Uh, apparently now he, if I'm thinking correctly, I think he works in like a shipping yard. I might be wrong about that. I might, I might be thinking of someone else entirely, but he's probably one of the more fortunate ones that he's been able to find a stable income, hopefully anyway, afterwards. And there's um, a point to be made also. I mean, I'm not a big Latifi guy. Uh, Latifi, Nicholas Latifi, who's racing for Williams this year, he, I don't know how old he is, um, but I know he's a damn sight older than, than the current top crop of youngsters. Um, are you looking it up now? <laughs> I think he's you 27. I haven't got the aiding, but I'm not going to do that. And that was after like four or five seasons of it. Like if you only come in good, like the, the likes of Palmer and Maldonado, uh, they were only ever really came good in GP2 when all of their peers were less experienced, and then they went went on to win the championship. And look how they did in Formula One. Well, obviously, mm-hmm. Maldonado won a race, but he was too <laughs> reckless for his own good. So it, it do, you do have to start wondering because it's been like that for a while. Formula One really is favouring the youngsters, and if like in the case of Harry Thompson, like I think he'll be like 15 or 16 now. Um, the fact that he's now not he's not got a Formula Four seat in like the British Championship or or maybe even like a front running seat in the German or Italian ones. Is it gonna get to a point now? And I'll throw this over to you, James. He, we're not gonna be able to like let these drivers fully develop because if they aren't good immediately, then they're gonna be thrown on the scrappy. Yeah, I I think that's such a prevalent um such a problem with motorsport these days I think you know people always talk about the Max Verstappen effect coming into F1 at 17 but I remember when um, when Van Dorn debuted in F1 in like his early 20s and people thought that was you know surprisingly old but, um, but yeah like you know Lewis Hamilton debuted in his early 20s and at the time that was ridiculously young but yeah there are all these drivers in that you know, even below Formula 3 that are approaching that sort of 18, 19 in age. And you think, I don't almost don't want to say it, but, you know, you wonder if they already missed the boat. Yeah, and then, exactly. It's ridiculous thinking that they haven't even, you know, some of them haven't even reached, like, legal adulthood. And you're thinking, is their career already gone? Yeah, Simon, go, go on, you go say whatever you're going to say there. And we're going to have with all the money that's involved, you can see why Formula One looks so, it looks like a very nepotistic, nepotistic sport. You know, you look at, um, I'm not sure, I don't know much about David Schumacher. I know he's into Formula Three now. Mm. Uh, he seems a pretty decent driver. But there's probably, you know, better drivers out there that can't get anywhere near that Formula mm. uh, just because of money. You think the FIA would take a long look at themselves and say, is this point system enough? Do we need to go look at another system to give opportunities to uh, 
to young drivers that, that possibly wouldn't have that. You, you look at Lewis Hamilton, and Lewis Hamilton, we know he came from a very humble background, and he's probably the only guy on the grid that can legitimately say that. And look how good he is. I know, are we going to have on a, on a spur? He could be, I could see him, if he says Mercedes are a winning, winning team, you could have the Roger Federer effect. So he'll, you'll have this old guy still capable of winning, winning races. And then you'll have the, the crop of young guys chasing him and really nibbling away at him. Mm. It's, you know, it's going to be fun. As long as, <laughs> as long as he's more competitive, and I think it will be more competitive now, you know, the changes going forward. In, they, they delayed the, the change they were bringing forward to 2022, haven't they? Yes. Yeah. But, you know, the, the financial restraints will be different next year. So maybe we'll, we'll see some sort of change. I was really looking forward to those new changes. And you want to see the change in their guard. You want to see these young guys do well. But from my point of view, as an older guy, it's also good to see, you know, some, someone of a... Uh, someone in their late 30s, maybe even early 40s, win races. Uh, I want to just bring up a point here about Max Verstappen. So we've seen a lot of the, like the drivers I mentioned there, Leclerc, he had four years of car racing, Norris had four as well, uh, Russell and Albon had a bit more. Verstappen had one. He had one mm. year of car racing between karting and Formula One. He, was, he raced in European F3 2014, finished third in that with like 10 wins. Um, more than the champion who was Esteban Ocon. Um, but he got the F1 nod because I'm, I'm glad that a lot of us were wrong, but I'm worried that perhaps what you mentioned earlier, James, that's gonna, that is really going to open like a flood, the floodgates for people to really gamble on, especially with Renault now, uh, now that they've lost their star driver, obviously not a pleasant thing to say. But I'm wor- when I was mentioning earlier about Christian Lundgaard and and to an extent, Guan Yu Zhou, who really only really came good in Formula 2 last year. He was very underwhelming in FIA, European F3. Um, they're really in a bit of a pickle now because their drivers, especially now with the COVID situation, possibly compromising their seasons. And Daniel Ricciardo got buggering off to McLaren next year. They're really in a, in a bit of a tough spot in regards to who they're going to be able to select for their 2021 drive. Yeah, I think the I think the Renault seat is um, going to be one of the most interesting ones, and they're in they are in a real dilemma because they, you know, they've got the uh, there's been rumours they're talking to Valtteri Bottas for next year. People are always obviously talking about Fernando Alonso, even though I don't <laughs> give those rumours much credit. Um, but they, yeah, they're in a position where they're losing their star driver, and although they've got Esteban Ocon, who's had two years in F1, he's going to three years under his belt by the end of next year he's I wouldn't say he's ready to be a team leader in the way that Ricardo was um who left their phone on (laughs) it wasn't me so they um yeah they've got that tricky position where they've got to try and find they've obviously got quite a few issues with that team and they're trying to build it back up so they need someone with that ability someone you know like Ricardo brought and like someone like Bottas could bring but at the same time, Renault's losing a lot of money this year, and they've, um, you know, they've had to cut so many jobs this year because of the pandemic. So they don't, they can't really justify spending the mega bucks for someone like Sebastian Vettel bringing him into the team. So they're in this tricky position where they've got to weigh up. You know, do we want to spend? Do we want to justify spending money 
trying to pull someone like Bottas away from Mercedes or pull someone else out of their contract somewhere else on the grid or take a punt on one of these young drivers. And, you know, it's sort of a catch-22 because if they don't take a chance on someone like Guan Yu Zhou or Christian Lungard, then it kind of invalidates their, their junior academy and all the money that they've invested into those drivers' careers. But equally, if they give them a chance and they're not ready for Formula One, that's kind of a year wasted for them when they've already had so many years, um, you know, stalling on their way at the grid. Anyone mentioned George Russell for the Renault seat? No, 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 no. <laughs> He's still locked into a contract with Williams, I think, for next year. I'm uh, hearing, I'm hearing that Daimler have said that they will commit to Formula One for a few more years if their Mercedes, the team, sign Vettel, and Toto Wolff mm -hmm. is at odds with them, saying that he wants to put Russell in the seat. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. Russell promises he has, isn't he? But, um, Vettel in a Mercedes is, is the dream ticket. Mm -hmm. They did want him originally, mm -hmm. but... I think it's controversial opinion, but I... I think um, Vettel can manipulate a team, you know, much, much like um, Frosty back in his day. No, not in a bad way, just you know, he can be that political animal if needed. I, I think he tried that, he's been trying to do that Ferrari and he's mm. realised uh, he's, the, he's the, the older man now and um, Charles is, is more in favour. And I think he, you know, him leaving is because he probably couldn't get you know, that number one status going forward. Yeah, I think right there about Vettel, you know, the effect that he has on a team. And, you know, when he was at Red Bull, he liked having that environment that he'd moulded around himself. And I think, yeah, I think he tried to do that at Ferrari, but it just didn't work. Like Schumacher was able to do it at Ferrari because him, John Don, Ross Braun were able to have this close-knit unit together. And they said, we'll make decisions together and resist pressure from upper Ferrari management. But when Vettel came into Ferrari, they had people like Arriva Benny and uh, now Mattia Bonotto, who were taking their orders from the higher Ferrari management, like Sergio Marchioni and uh, Louis Camilleri. So Vettel's not been able to kind of create that same partnership with the, the team principal that Schumacher was. And he just yeah. wouldn't be able to do that in Mercedes while Hamilton's there. Especially, yeah. Ferrari, they, they went such a long Baron's to Schumacher, and it was only when they brought the people that weren't Italian into the team that weren't as passionate who could stand away and say, no, we need to do this, we need to build, you can't go 200 miles an hour all the way, mm. to be. you've got to take these little steps and build, that they actually built a winning team and were able to win, and I think until they admit that and go after someone and build a team from behind, they won't win a championship. Yeah, well, uh, Ferrari, I think they really want to show that they, because Leclerc is actually their first ever Ferrari Academy driver to join the main team. And he, they really want to show that that investment was worth it. But then also, uh, Vettel, when he was, you know, rising to the number one position at Red Bull during the time that they their ascendancy to starting to win races and championships we obviously saw him being the the very conniving uh i don't want to say bratty because it looks like i'm really having a go at him but <laughs> let's just say that 
what every uh-huh. racing every every sportsman at the top of the game has that about Lewis has it the champion yeah. mentality yeah. Yeah. it's Vettel had that at Red Bull and then the second that uh, a young gun came along and did to him in the case of Ricardo did to him what he did to Weber he buggers off to Ferrari thinking that he can and he was given leniency with the fact that Kimi was his teammate and Kimi didn't give to uh, what word I'm looking for they didn't, he didn't care about the fact that Vettel was him and but as long as Kimi got paid and the fact is is that Hamilton and Vettel had a Finnish teammate who wouldn't contend with them Hamilton proved that it was warranted Vettel he just kept spinning around like he was on an office chair and so they, they brought in Leclerc, young, fresh blood, to maybe rejuvenate Vettel, but he bottles it again. Uh, and I don't, it's such an anom- anomaly, honestly, with Vettel. It's kind of infuriating as to why he is the way he is. Why He won four championships, and now he's just a shell of his former self. And uh, it's very frustrating. Even for me, as someone who isn't a huge fan of Vettel, it's just perplexing. Yeah, I mean, he's a genuinely, from what I've seen, genu- seems a genuinely nice guy outside of the car. He's got mm. a good set of humor. You know, all that naming of the car business and, you know, was it Dirty Die or some Dirty something? But you might go to, I mean, Renault and, and Mercedes are, and Daimler are really closely tied. I mean, they share a lot of parts on their road cars mm-hmm. and their gearboxes and things. Uh, most manufacturers do share a lot of stuff now. So there is... There is some, obviously, with Ocon going to Renault, there is a relationship there. So, the better would go to Renault for a year and, and then dump ship and go to Mercedes if, if Lewis decides to go with I can't, well, can you see Lewis driving for anyone else? I, no. I, 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 the only one I can actually think of, of him going to is probably Aston. But even then, that is still a gamble. That would be like Alonso going to McLaren Honda. And obviously, mm. we know how that turned out. I'd love to see him drive a Williams. I'd love to see him go to Williams and um, pull them off the bootstrap, but mm. I that's not going to happen either. Uh, gentlemen, I am going to have to probably end the episode here. Um, okay. It's been a very informative conversation. We started talking about the calendar restructuring and how motorsport will get going again, and we just end up talking badly about Vettel. So <laughs> I don't know how that happened. <laughs> So, uh, shall I end this episode off here? That's going to take some editing. Good luck, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, good luck, Aaron. Uh, I have to send you. Yeah. Anyway, let's send it here. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this installment of the Pitcast. Uh, now, if we want to give out our social media handles, uh, James? Uh, I'm at James16Matthews on Twitter and Instagram. Okay. Simon? I'm the F1 Taxi. The F1 Taxi, right. And I am the Luca Format. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We will see you out on track.